Welcome back to the Remedial Film Class Podcast. I'm your host, Dan. I'm Travis. And I'm George. And as you guys know, George ain't seen no movies, but we're working on him one week at a time. (laughs) This week's movie is American Werewolf in London. It's an American Werewolf. An American Werewolf in London. How? Starring Dr. Pepper's David Naughton. George is like, what's a Dr. Pepper? (laughs) (laughs) Have you had a hot Dr. Pepper with a lemon? Yes, I had it at your place. Oh, right. Yes, it's the only way to drink Dr. Pepper. I had one today. It was delightful. Talk about being typecasted. Like He probably thought he was going to be typecasted as the Dr. Pepper guy, and then he wound up being typecasted as the guy from Became a Werewolf and was naked. You do see his balls. Uh, Spoiler (laughs) alert for George. Hey, so George, uh, have you ever heard of this movie? Um, I, I don't, I don't know. Um, maybe. I, I don't know. Okay, well that's great. Do you have any idea what it's going to be about? A werewolf. It's a horror <laughs> film, I guess. I, I don't know. It's a werewolf, the werewolf thing. Have you ever seen any mm. werewolf movies? Are you familiar with lycanthropy or any kind of uh, werewolf lore? Like what? Yeah. Lycanthropy. It's like. Therapy for dogs. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, that word became big because of the uh, underworld movies where they named say it that again. Group. Lycanthropy. Lycanthropy. Okay. They called them lichens in in the underworld movies. Oh, I get it. Okay. No, I don't. Know. Well, do I know anything about it? Yeah. I mean, the the full moon and the werewolf turns from a man to a werewolf and. And terrorizes people and then turns back. But I, I don't know. Yeah. I, okay. All right. That's all I. That's all I really know. And do you that's have any basic idea, knowledge? Do you know who John Landis is? No. Okay. Good. Sweet. All right. Well, hey, uh, we're gonna let George watch that movie, and we'll be right back. All right, we're back, George. We took your werewolf maiden flower, and here we are. <laughs> yes, you did. You sure did. <sighs> well, after last week, I don't. I'm hesitant to let you talk first because I don't want you to ruin my two <laughs> my two pages of notes I have kill here. Your, kill your notes. <laughs> but uh, well, I uh, I didn't take any notes this time. Okay. I normally do jot down a few things, but I didn't this time. I just I just sat and watched and enjoyed. Well, what did you learn? What's your first impression? First of all, let me just say that I'm really enjoying this. Okay, good. Like, I'm really enjoying this. This movie was not what I expected. It's not... I, th- I thought it was just like an old horror flick. It's right. not that. No. It, it It's almost like Shaun of the Dead kind of... Well, he did say, the director of that movie did say that he was highly influenced by John Landis's werewolf. So, okay, makes a lot of sense. Well, obviously there there is... You know, there's terror in it. There's suspense. You just have scenes in that movie that are, I don't want to say like outlandish, but like he's in a you know porno theater and he's talking to all the people that he killed. And at the, I mean, at this point, like he doesn't even care. Uh, we're getting way too far into the movie, way, way too fast. But did it leave an impression? Yes. Okay. It, and it was refreshing to watch something that was original. And what's crazy is the movie's like 40 years old. 
<laughs> yeah. So yeah, like all I ever see anymore is this being remade and that being remade, and it's like, oh, this is a new movie, but it's really just this other movie rebranded. This was going in thinking it was a werewolf movie. Absolutely, absolutely, totally original. In my mind, it is the werewolf movie. And what's funny is my other favorite werewolf movie came out the same year was The Howling. I was six years old when this movie came out, so I wasn't old enough to watch these movies. But London was one of the first movies I snuck down when my parents went to bed without them knowing it. So I was probably like nine. I was very impressionable. And I saw Fangoria magazines and stuff in the 7-Elevens. Yeah. And I would leaf through them. And I saw all these creations that Rick Baker created. And it made me such a fan at such an early age. But I only knew him from this movie. And then I snuck and watched Greystoke. I watched all these movies and I found out that he was involved in these movies. Mm. And when I look at his, his IMDb, I realize how important he was in my life and in my childhood and my adulthood. <laughs> He won an Oscar. They created the category the year that he made this creature, and he won the first Oscar for special effects. Okay, I can movie. see that. This th this movie really, really stands the it test was cutting of time. Edge. At the time, like, no, I mean, was... like, yeah, I mean, obviously, there's better effects now, but it it's it stands the test of time. I I can even argue that like it stands. The, the practical effects in this movie stand up to today's CGI uh, in more ways than one. When you see a transformation uh, in a movie now, it's so fake looking. It's so computer generated. And they're still trying to capture what he did back then. And he was a young makeup artist. He wasn't... Yeah. He was maybe working for seven years. And yeah. He was the, like an apprentice. The transformation looked good. Yeah. Like that, that was good hair. <laughs> it, it was it was good it was good at everything his hair was perfect is that what i'm hearing <laughs> yeah perfect. i actually uh i hadn't seen this in forever this was almost like a first watch again it'd been so long and i i generally find myself on team savini if we're talking special oh, yeah. effects yeah uh but man you gotta hand it to baker in this one and they do a good job if they did it today he'd be bounding up and down the stairs and he'd be growling yep. and stuff it just wouldn't be the same you can't you can't trick the mind uh, with CGI like you can with those prosthetics just stretching those feet. Oh, so yeah, awesome. they uh, they talk about the the footage that they didn't use, and I watched it, and I was like, man. Think about that scene, like that transformation scene. Not only is it, and I read about the fact that Rick Baker was approached by Landis in 71, I think. Landis wrote the script, and he approached Baker, and he's like, listen. I want to do this transformation because he was a huge fan of the Lon Chaney werewolf movies, mm -hmm. but they always did the overlays to make them change. They yep. never okay. did anything. Gotcha. So he's like, I want to do this scene. I want this man to transform in a take, one take in front of the on screen with no lapse, time lapse. How do you do it? And Baker's like, uh. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it 10 years went by. Like he was overwhelmed or he was like they chomping just, at the bit for the opportunity to do it. Yeah. Because like, he knew what to do. Right. And they had no backing. They had no money. Yeah. And Landis was like, I'm going to make it. I'm going to make it. I'm going to make it. And Baker's like, well, I'm waiting. I'm waiting. I'm waiting. Gotcha. And then he got hired to do the howling. So he started working on the howling. And then Landis was like, fuck. <laughs> right. <laughs> I got to get him. So then he brought him over. So then his apprentice, Baker's apprentice, who worked on RoboCop. Okay. Uh, 
wound up doing the werewolves in the howling they both came out the same year baker's werewolf was so much less traditional mm-hmm. you know making him look like an an oversized wolverine oh yeah he just i mean looked, it was hulking. there was there was no man to it no. once it really transformed all the way right and so, a, another thing that i, I want to point out like dan was saying before if it was cgi it would be like right in front of your face all the time because you know like the transformed creature wasn't you know the werewolf wasn't really that great looking Mm -hmm. you know they kind of kept him out of some some scenes you have a lot of people running you know and turning around a corner and looking behind them and they're terrified but like you it's all editing they leave it to the imagination as to Mm -hmm. what the thing looks like or what the thing's doing it's kind of like what hitchcock did with the you know with the the murder scene with the sounds it was much worse in your head than it probably looked well it's a spielberg trick yeah he did it with jaws you know these directors from that time they also did it in alien it's not what you see it's what you don't see right that suspense it's Mm -hmm. and and it wasn't really because they didn't have faith in the monster in this movie i I know with jaws they didn't really have faith in bruce the shark Mm -hmm. he was looking a little animated and a little robotic yeah so they edited it in a way because of their restrictions but this Wolf, the only restrictions they really had was being a quadruped. So right. it's like you can't put a man in the suit and have him walk like a man. They wanted him on all fours, so they had to figure out a way. So they had like a dolly cart for the bottom half. So when they okay. had him come in and out of the frame, it is a man with his arms, but he's on a dolly cart, so you can't show the dolly cart. So okay. that's why they did a lot of editing. And then there's a hand puppet that they use for the head, for the biting scenes and all that stuff. So uh-huh. it's just one hand puppet. Right. And... uh and then when he's running around the streets, it's a man on a cart. Okay. So he's, like, walking himself around. Right. So they they purposely did it because of the suspense, not because of the creature not looking right. Like, uh, there's a story where Landis, basically that scene, that transformation scene was supposed to be a lot shorter, but he was so mesmerized by how great yeah. the effects were that he actually made it a lot longer because he was just like, wow. Yeah, because if you make it a lot longer, you can always cut it down. Right. But, but I mean, there was so much gold there that he just he kept a lot of it. Yeah, it was it was awesome. And I I it, looking back now, I have actually seen like the picture of his hand getting longer, like yeah. that scene where he's looking at his hand and he's like screaming because what the hell's going on? I have seen that. Right. But when it happened in the movie, I was like, oh, this is the movie. Okay. And what's funny about that scene and crazy is <laughs> it's in broad daylight or full light, house light. There's no shadow trickery. You know, the lights are low. The stuff they do now with CGI, oh, we don't want to render that, so we're going to make it dark. Mm -hmm. Like, it's in a house, and there's no room for error. It it all happens in front of you. Yeah. There's nothing covering anything. To have faith in Baker that much, to just shoot that. And that was their original idea, was this is going to happen. Yeah, I can see it happening in a dark room being really helpful and making the job a lot easier. Right. But they didn't go that route. I like it. You have to hand it to a director who can gauge correctly what he has in camera and to shoot around it the the right way. You know, uh, too many of these movies, uh, Predator from the 80s, you know, Mm. uh, you just see so much of that character that it's like that guy's uh, just an idiot in a suit. Like, he moves great. He's in shadow. He's uh, cloaked or whatever. He looks really cool and intimidating. And then he comes back to full view and just stands there and you're like, oh, that's a guy in like a rubber hockey suit. Like, 
Ugh. Yeah. But this one, the transformation is so good that he, you know, he can have faith in it, leave it in the camera the way it is, and then, uh, you know, shoot around it later for the sake of chaos. Can't say enough good things about when they're doing like the dolly shots chasing uh, the guy through the subway. You know, where it's it's subjective camera, which is a thing we're going to talk about a lot going forward with slasher movies and, and Jalo and stuff, where, you you know, it's killer perspective. Uh, right. So the camera right. is the view of the killer. But this is the best example I've ever seen of a full speed chase in the subjective, you know, and it yeah. gives you that adrenaline rush of just it's it's horror, but it's also just like the chase. It's pretty cool. Yeah, it's good stuff. Now... I asked you earlier if you were familiar with John Landis. Now, George, have you ever seen a short film from the mid-'80s called Thriller? The Thriller, like... Like the music the video. The music video? The Michael Jackson boom, boom, video. Boom. Yes. Because yeah. that is directed by John Landis, and the special okay. effects are Rick Baker. Rick Baker. Oh. And cool. actually, I come to this movie through Thriller, because growing up in the early-'90s, uh, before we all knew... Uh, we were big Michael Jackson fans at our house and <laughs> right. the making of thriller documentary is available on YouTube. Now we had to tape it off MTV back in the day, yep. but they go through the entire process uh, layer by layer of how they turned Michael Jackson into something that was threatening to women. <laughs> Ten. <laughs> <laughs> What's women. funny is I, I was, a f- I think I was, when did that video come out? 83? I like 83, 84. Okay, so I was a little younger than when I saw London, and I didn't put two and two together. I didn't know they were made by the same person. Mm. I didn't even know. I knew I watched the making of, and I saw Rick Baker, and I saw him talk about it, and I saw him say he was one of the zombies, and John Landis, also, but I never really cared about all that. I was more about, oh, that's a really cool werewolf, because the werewolf in the thriller movie... I was just like, I was blown away. It's more it of like a were-cat. A were-cat, yeah. a little cat, bit more yeah. lion to it. But still, I mean, that transformation and everything, and then when I saw Miracle World, I was like, these are very similar. And then I, then I found out. I was yeah. like, oh, okay. But two of my favorite things, memories of my childhood, are those two things. Staying up to midnight to watch a thriller video when it premiered. Yeah. And, and sneaking downstairs and watching Werewolf in London. Nice. Like, a hundred times. Now, Landis is a guy, uh, while we're talking about John Landis, uh, he reminds me a lot of Bob Clark. Are you guys familiar with Bob Clark? He's a director. What did uh, he do? No. So I'm he not. did um, Christmas Story. He did okay. Porky's. Yes. But he started off doing movies like Black Christmas and Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things. Like, he starts off in the horror genre but branches out. But, like, everything he puts together is like quality you know and right. landis is the same way he may be doing you know animal house comedy or kentucky fried movie you know or <laughs> hell, blues brothers which is blues brothers yeah an all-time favorite of mine those two were in the can before he made th- they were the reason why he was able to get the money to make werewolf in london because when he wrote it he was 18 so he was 1969 i think when he wrote it and it sat it was shelved. The first draft was shelved for like 10 years. Oh, my God. How is that possible? Development hell, man. Well, he couldn't get anybody to fund it because or no producers could be, would get behind it because they said it's too scary to be a comedy and it's too 
you know, funny to be a horror movie. They were wrong. They were wrong. Well, <laughs> they it, were really he, wrong. He kind of started a genre in yeah. a way. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. if, if you think about, like, I don't know if you've seen Beetlejuice or Gremlins. Yeah. Or uh, what was the other one? Um, Evil Dead. Too like it. Evil I've Dead never, has that. I've never seen that. I've I've seen like I've seen Beetlejuice, but like not. I haven't really watched it. Right. Um, I have seen Gremlins though. So it's that it's that mixture of comedy and horror. Yes. That he pretty much put together. I like it. I feel <laughs> like we really brushed up against like a, a portal, you know, or like a door labeled "Do Not Open" for George, <laughs> as we're like, oh yeah, by the way, George. Uh, development hell, the place where the the best scripts that have never been made are just waiting. Yeah, I don't think he's ready for that yet. No, <laughs> just no. That's like a whole corner of uh, film development is all the alternate scripts that get canned on the way to a development that actually makes it to market, but also a pile of scripts that are either too expensive to shoot or you know the rights issues have bogged them down to the point that they've been sitting there for 20 years and you can read them uh in mm. you know bootleg copies but they're just waiting waiting on an opportunity and sometimes like with with Landis with this he was the writer and the director so that's his baby and the studio would easily come in and ruin that like they wanted to they wanted to, him to cast uh Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi as mm-hmm. the as the Jack as the and two, David yeah. characters, and he's like, they're filming Neighbors right now. They just come off of Blues Brothers. They're, t- they're almost too known. Yeah, I want it to be unknowns, which is great for us because that's the first place I ever saw Griffin Dunn in anything, and I love him. He's the Jack character. Yeah, you know everything he's in, I love. I saw an interview with Landis, and he said, like he said, he wanted to make a contemporary version of an old film, which I think he's he successfully did. Yeah, it's crazy to think he let it sit from you know sixty nine or so until eighty, eighty one, and it did still feel fresh and modern. I mean, that's just testament yeah. to his writing ability and also you know his flexibility uh, on set. One thing that I noticed this time, having watched the making of Thriller a dozen times or so over my life, uh, that opening scene with David, his dialogue, but also his delivery. He's just doing a John Landis impression, like that's right. straight out of the mouth of John Landis. Uh, inflection and all and <laughs> that's just a you know we talked about the Lorne Michaels elements of Rob Lowe's failed impression in Wayne's world <laughs> yeah uh, yeah but this was you know this wasn't the Dr. Evil version of John Landis this was just like a really good impression of John Landis in those yeah. opening scenes with David's dialogue it was it was fun probably came from like pre-production phone meetings and stuff where he just kind of picked it up table reads and stuff yeah but I I, I looked at Landis's because I'm like, I, I I look at his IMDb, and I'm like, okay, Animal House, Blues Brothers, Werewolf in London, Trading Places, Twilight Zone, Thriller, Spies Like Us, Three Amigos, Coming to America. And I'm thinking, this man directed my childhood. Like, he's almost like, uh, you know, Ivan Reitman and all these guys. Like, everything that they made influenced me. Yeah. <sighs> it's just, it's amazing. Yeah. That these all two. The, I, haven't, I haven't seen all those, but I know... You will. I know all of those <laughs> movies. Like, yeah, that's. But I think about like Rick Baker and John Landis met when they were both young apprentices, basically. And it's kind of like when you f- hear the stories about when Spielberg met Lucas and they worked on films together. Yeah. Like there's such icons and they weren't at the time. Right. It's, it's mind boggling. Love it. 
good stuff. Now Travis talked about the Universal monsters. Have you ever seen any any of the old like right around the beginning of the Hayes Code era Universal series? You know your Draculas, your Frankenstein's, your Wolfman's creature. Uh, I I don't know. I'd say no. You should watch them. They're really good. Yeah, I mean they are. <laughs> I, I don't want to say they're Mike dated because they are. Dracula yeah. is still scary, man. I showed that to my kids, thinking, "Oh, yeah. it's it's the '30s. It'll be Hayes Code." And then I looked it up, and it's was, "Oh, is pre pre code? Yeah, that's too scary." Mm. Oops. <laughs> yeah, sorry, mm. kids. The the big five are still they still hold up. Yeah, they're black and white. Yeah, they're from the '50s and '30s. You know, Dracula's '31. Uh, Frankenstein's in the '30s too. But it's like they still hold up. The effects. I mean, it's the sound isn't that good, but. Okay. Everything else, I would I would de- definitely check them out. Yeah. You didn't really say you had much knowledge of the werewolf lore, other than you know the full moon, mm-hmm. silver bullets and all that stuff. So, how did you feel when they kind of crapped on that? Or did you realize that they were changing it? I I didn't realize it. At, at what point did they change it? Uh, well, you find out at the, when when they talk about when he talks to Jack about silver bullets. Yeah, and Jack just goes, "Come on, like." Yeah, right. You know, that and uh, they add they added so much. They added the the tortured soul, you know, the nightmares, which is something you didn't see before. Mm-hmm. Uh, the walking the world as the undead until yeah. The, no, I I didn't know enough about the Lord to know that that was that new. that didn't exist. So okay. it's like Landis took you know liberty to create new lore, which a lot of it became canon gotcha. for werewolves. But uh, he added a lot to it, like just just the whole undead thing and being visited by Jack to me was yeah. It added so much to the movie. Yeah, I liked how how good um, uh, David felt the day after mm-hmm. not remembering anything. Like he felt alive and like he felt great, and it was just like invigorated. Yeah, in such great spirits. It's like it's all that adrenaline so he, funny. he ingested. Yeah, <laughs> from the people he killed. <laughs> I was like, yo, I love that that's a side effect of, uh, you know. But they were building you up to that because they kept saying, they kept showing him not hungry. Yeah. So it's like, okay, he's not hungry, but when he became the wolf and he was just so driven, like thirsty for blood that he didn't realize that he, he doesn't know why his body is telling him why he's not hungry. Because then when he becomes the wolf, he's just completely famished. Like he just, he needs it. It it I love the animal as, uh, aspect of it. Yeah, having uh, having Jack come back and, and multiple times, and him thinking he's crazy, mm. and you know, you know what's going on with that. That was I mean I'm sitting there watching it like is he is he hallucinating, right? And and you know and then every time he comes back he looks different and he's gotten more dead. Now, how did you feel about the dream sequence with, with, uh, did they get you with the jump scare with the second wake up? No, (laughs) no. When she opened the blinds? No, because when he woke up and she goes, and I kind of, I just, I had a feeling that when she opened that, (laughs) that when she opened that, it was going to be, you know, something that was going to be scary. I didn't think it would be another, like a dream within a dream. Right. But I knew it was going to be something that was meant to scare you as soon as she opens that curtain. I found on YouTube the reactions from 1981 of the crowd from that scene. Mm-hmm. They had somebody had audio. Yeah, 
and just the, <laughs> the quiet right when he wakes up the second time or the first time there's a, like a calm and so you can hear the crowd kind of talking to each other uh -huh. about what they just watched yeah and then she opens the curtains and you hear their reaction like they were not expecting that at all yeah and then <laughs> i don't know why i had a feeling i had a feeling well yeah I mean, it's kind of set up a little bit yeah because every t you know every time he comes back he looks worse right and it, you look like shit, Jack. <laughs> yeah, by the, <laughs> by the time they get to that point, like, there's, like, no flesh on his face. And I'm like, how is he pronouncing his P's? Yes. You know, like, and I'm like, you know, I just, I was like, George, stop being George, just be a regular well, person. Well, there's two things that bother me about this movie, even after seeing it a million times, is he's enunciating too well yeah. to not have lips. Right. And there's one part at the very end where the, the wolf is cornered at the back of the street. Mm-hmm. And they play the howling sound, and his mouth isn't moving, so they just kind of throw it in there. Oh, I didn't even notice and that. I saw it. I was like, "Oh man, if that little clip was no, taken was... out, it would have been perfect." Because it, yeah. it did look like they forced an extra howl in there, but they didn't have mm -hmm. any manipulation to the mouth of the of the wolf, so it kind gotcha. of looked, looked strange. And the howl alone, I remember hearing that howl for the first time when I was nine years old, and I'm so used to the oh. You know that yeah. that old Universal Wolf howl, and I heard that I was like, "What does this thing look like?" Yeah, because it totally changes what you know about monster movies yeah. about werewolves. It's like, oh, it's a dog. It's this, but that that howl. I still, when I hear it, I get like, not anxious, but because I know it's coming. But it's just so so different than what you're used to. Yeah. Also, I loved in the in the theater scene um, how indifferent all of the six people were about his life like you know and they <laughs> they don't care they, about they all had great ideas of, about how he could kill himself and they were very willing <laughs> to great. provide them it it, it just it, it cracked me up and i was like yeah this is this is nutty i like it so <laughs> what did you think of the the giant car crash and the the chaos of the moment there at the in the kind of big final act i, I don't know i thought it was excessive yeah, it was. <laughs> Have you ever seen Blues Brothers? Because they do a very similar giant car crash just for the hell of it. <laughs> no. Well, I have I have seen Blues Brothers, but it's one of those things that I don't really remember. I'm really interested to know, like, because we're talking about this development of the script and when these ideas come to land this. Like, I'd be willing to bet that having been written in the late 60s, that the undead purgatory thing, at least somewhat is influenced by George Romero's Night of the Living Dead. I'm willing okay. to put that out there. It's possible. But then I wonder, chicken and egg, does Blues Brothers have a giant car crash because he'd already written that for London? Or right. does London get a car crash because it went over so well in Blues Brothers? Like, That's my question for John Landis when I get to sit down with him next week. <laughs> yeah, I have a question for him, too, if you get to sit down with him. What's that? know. I noticed something after seeing this movie, I would say over a hundred times I've seen this movie. Okay. Now, if you caught this, then good for you. <laughs> when, when nurse Alex comes out of, uh, they're sitting in bed talking, she's wearing her NYU t-shirt. Mm -hmm. I realized, holy shit. She collects nothing but American stuff. Oh, that's interesting. She, she had a Casablanca uh, post. When he walks into her apartment, she's got Mickey Mouse, Donald Duck all over the place. She has the Casablanca poster. Uh, 
She's got tchotchkes everywhere. They're all American stuff. American radios. Like, it, it just uh, looks like 1950s America in her house, right? I did not notice that. That's pretty but good. But that's awesome. Like and that it dawned lot. on me, because <laughs> somebody was, uh, I saw someone's review of this movie, and they, it was a younger person, and they were complaining about the love story. And it's actually the opposite of what I was talking about last week, where they didn't build the relationship well enough. I think they did for, maybe not so much for the love feelings but mm-hmm. there definitely was chemistry chemistry f- between them the whole time there was a probably a, two weeks went by yeah but i thought to myself she it's it's almost like the nightingale effect yes but i almost thought she brought him home because she she put him in her collection yes i know people in real life <laughs> that are like yeah. that and that yeah it's kind of weird in real life but in the movie it just makes for good character development that's so funny. Like she collects American stuff, and he was the ultimate piece to her collection. She, he was an American man, mm-hmm. and she brought him home for her collection. That to me gave her. <laughs> I was like, "Are you kidding me?" So I want to ask him if he purposely did that, or if that's just my observation. Now, were the actors that played uh, David and Jack were they actually American? Yes, they're both American, I believe. Okay. Yes. Because, okay. Cause I I was just thinking that when as it developed and I was like oh, okay he's gonna be the werewolf I you know and they I guess they established it that you know they were visiting but and I you know I guess they, they established were that they were visiting from from America but I I I don't know why I just pictured him in my head as like two you know well they were th- that beginning conversation that improved conversation in the beginning kind of establishes that they we should have went here but we came here. We have three months. We can hit Italy later. Like we're, they're obviously backpacking across Europe, right? So, and they're very American. And then when they go into this, I didn't, I didn't see them as very American. No, but it's fine. That's why I asked: Were they trying to act American or were they actually American? <laughs> it's it's fine. It's Apparently, the slaughtered lamb. When when Griffin Dunn says, uh, "What kind of ad is that?" Like for for a pub. Like that, yeah. that's an improv line. Like he just saw that, and he probably was like, really? <laughs> "That's that's what you named it, the slaughtered lamb." Which yeah. is funny because it's basically they sent them out. It's um, it, you know, they sent yeah. them out as a sacrifice. Yes. So mm-hmm. that the wolf wouldn't come in to town, basically. Yes. Yeah, the sheep and <sighs> lamb presence in the first act of this movie is bordering on too much. Like. Every time <laughs> they go outside, another herd of sheep go by, and like, okay, we get it. And there's a wolf. <laughs> It's going to eat somebody. Like, okay, gotcha. Yeah. Like, they ride in <laughs> on the truck. A truck full. With a bunch sheep. of lambs. Sheep. <laughs> well, I think, I mean, I, I thought the symbolism was more of sacrifice. Not so much of him being a wolf among sheep. But I guess it goes both ways. And no Warren Zevon in the entire movie. <laughs> what the heck? What the heck? I mean... You know, if if the song was Werewolves Are Cool, okay, yeah, okay, fine. If it's I Like To Do Night Stuff In London, okay, fine. You don't have to put that in your movie. I mean, you got every other but, m- song that's ever mentioned a moon in the darn movie. <laughs> yeah. But you don't have Werewolves Of London in your movie re- about London <laughs> with werewolves in it. What are I you read doing? somewhere that, that Naughton and Dunn both questioned that 
and they still don't have an answer. I'm so sure I don't it's know a if, rights issue or Tom Cruise well, was like, we're using that in my movie. You can't have it. <laughs> you like my Tom Cruise impression? That's a real good one. Yeah, it's fantastic. It's wow. like he was on the podcast for a second. <laughs> Are you jumping on the couch right now? Um, <laughs> <laughs> apparently, he, he got the rights to do all those songs pretty easily, but there were two or three songs that would not make it in the movie. They said no. One was a Bob Dylan song. I think it was his version of Blue Moon. And uh, what was the other? who? Who was the singer that became uh, converted to Islam? Oh, Cat uh, Stevens. Yeah, there was a Cat Stevens song that he he said it's against his beliefs. Oh, Cats in the Cradle. Mm. Yeah, I mean, but again, the, he's picking songs basically that have the word "moon" in them. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's one way to gotcha. pick your soundtrack. <laughs> Guys, <laughs> I do wonder though if it's a, it's another thing that when we talk about this uh, weird kind of period in the refrigerator from the late 60s until the early 80s, like you know, you may not be able to shoehorn in, or maybe it's too, too on the nose, you know, maybe it's right. not subtle enough <laughs> for a movie. Well, apparently, <laughs> where the werewolf eats the sheep people, <laughs> he apparently picked London just because it was cheaper. It was going to be in Paris. Really? So, uh, you know, it, I mean, he does have a, f- uh, a love of the old black and white horror movies, and there were two other werewolf movies that took place in London. So he had that going for him, which is nice. He uh, he just, there was no significance to London. It was just basically where they filmed. Hey, so while we're talking about Katie Holmes, uh, <laughs> <laughs> did anybody else, and this is, okay, podcast listeners uh i am obsessed with batman movies okay the comics are good the old tv show is wonderful but my heart and soul basically a uh, bridge from batman 89 through dark knight rises like that's that's kind of my whole worldview is those movies okay did anybody else think that alex looked like a british uh, maggie gyllenhaal a little bit it was yeah. bugging me the whole time that they have the same face. Yeah, that that pouty face, the bigger eyes. Yeah, I I get it. And then yeah. that makeup as the guy degrades in Purgatory, he looks more and more like Two Face from <laughs> uh, the Dark Knight. Mm. I mean, there's That's some really right here. really dark nighty kind of makeup <laughs> going on there. Okay. I think that's just me though. I think that I run everything through the bat lens. Nice. Yeah. Uh <laughs> You talked about the the ending, like the car crash and all that stuff. But uh, while I was watching it, again, for the hundredth time, I noticed that it kind of resembled the same last 20 minutes of King Kong's life. That chaos, the breaking through a theater door, running through the streets, she comes to calm him down. Uh, The the whole scene with the, the, uh, because they don't have guns, the police don't have guns in London. And the scene of them, uh, the SWAT, you know, the English SWAT. Yeah, where's RoboCop when you need him? Yeah, when yeah. when they're in the truck and they're loading, that that was reminiscent of you know them getting in the airplanes and flying towards the Empire State. Mm-hmm. Like it just had that same Beauty and the Beast feel. Yeah, although at the end, you know, uh, the werewolf does like his you know his face kind of drops like he's just not. A tad, yeah. yeah, just a little bit, but. It, I don't think they. Sh- I don't think they show it from what I remember. He, he didn't. Did he lunge at her? Yes. Okay. So he did. So all right. So that's that's different. Did yeah. He, though, like I, I mean, I, 
Yeah, I I've don't only know. seen you don't it really the one time it. recently, but they I, shot him too fast. Damn I got cops. the impression that he, yeah, he was he was allowing himself to be shot, but I don't remember him ever provoking. I mean, I hate to get you know political, but no, I, I, it looks to <laughs> it to me it looked like death death by cop. <laughs> Werewolf? You mean like suicide matter. by cop? <laughs> yeah, like I think he yeah suicide he, by cop he probably like yeah suicide by cop. Yeah. Like I think he I don't want to put human thought because the then he wouldn't have done everything else he did. Well, you but can. But seeing her might... You can put human right. thought in the head because when he saw her... He did lower and she, his and she snarl. Spoke, and she spoke to him. He responded to it. So there was some... But he does lunge at her. He does begin to lunge I'm going to have to go back and look shoot. at that again. Yeah, but does he do it on purpose? I don't know. To, get, to kill himself? Get because he knows John that's Landis what he on the phone. Do. I want to know. Well, obviously, they, they <laughs> left it that way on purpose. They, yeah. I think they, they let you decide... But it was new. I think it was probably just Directive 4. I mean, he's just a soul trapped in a machine. Oh, that's a different <laughs> thing. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Crazy. Yeah, it was. that was good, though. Do you like a little <laughs> tragedy in your horror movies, George? I, you know I love tragedy. I don't Do get it, that? man. I mean, I like it in this movie because it's not like going to... It doesn't bury the knife too deep in your like soul and twist it in your heart and stuff. So you're not like bawling at the end of the movie, unless you're really into dead werewolves, in which case you might be all over it. But okay, so here's the thing about tragedies, and this is my—it's a philosophy of mine. I'm going to philosophize for a minute. If you haven't noticed, life is a tragedy. Yes. Are Dan? Are you happy? I mean, podcasting is fun. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> I mean in your life with your family and your kids yeah You're happy. I mean, it's a happy th- life right yeah things are good man for now okay you're living in a tragedy what are you talking we're about we're all doomed no this we're all, all doomed. Yeah. This ends well right I mean at the end we just <laughs> credits <laughs> roll and then we the reset moment. and start over with more continues isn't that how this <laughs> goes <laughs> maybe some some might say no but anyway uh, there's what I'm trying to get at is there's beauty in tragedy, yeah. and there's beauty in suffering too. It doesn't have to be you know you don't have to be crying at a, you know at a tragedy. Like my favorite tragedy is Road to Perdition, where mm. you know the whole time you know Tom Hanks is trying to shelter his kid, keep his kid out of the world that he's in, and you know at the end he doesn't succeed, right? Right, but basically the kid at that point is a man, you know, based on that action and at the end. And then he moves to Las Vegas. Is that for part two? And then you go back and look at Tom Hanks's childhood. Is that, oh no, a different franchise. It's beautiful. <laughs> the end of that movie is beautiful, even though it's sad that he couldn't in the end keep his son from mm. that life. Or not that that life, but keep his son innocent. He couldn't do it. It's impossible anyway. It was a tragedy, but it was... It was beautiful. Hey, George, have you ever found Bugs Bunny attractive when he dressed up like a lady bunny? (laughs) I just spilled my heart and soul. (laughs) No. (laughs) You're asking if I think Lady Bugs Bunny's attractive. It's a little tragedy. It's a little comedy. (laughs) (laughs) Trying to break the mood a little bit. Yeah. He got all deep. (laughs) Okay, so uh, George... Have you ever seen American Werewolf in London? No. I have seen 
and American Werewolf in London. Hey! Hey! <laughs> <laughs> awesome. All right, Travis, why don't we tell George what's uh, stalking him in the night uh, for next week? All right, you want to do tragedy? Sure. <laughs> We're going to throw epic tragedy at you. We are going to watch Clerks. Okay. The great Kevin Smith Clerks. There's multiple Clerks, right? There's a Clerks 2. Okay. There's a Clerks 3 coming, maybe. He keeps promising, and we keep hoping. Once he gets poor enough, he'll make three, which he will never be. Okay. Cool. So, Clerks is up. Sounds good. All right. Well, guys, thank you for joining us again on the Remedial Film Class podcast. As always, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at at Remedial Film Pod. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Remedial Film Pod. And, of course, you can email us at remedialfilmpod at gmail.com. We'll see you back here soon. Mm -hmm.